Hello and welcome. My name is Raj Basord and I'm a consultant psychiatrist based in private practice in Harley Street in central London. And I'm delighted to be joined now by Professor James Hines. Professor James Hines is a published novelist who has taught creative writing as a visiting professor at the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop, the University of Michigan, the University of Texas, Miami University and Grinnell College. He has a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy from the University of uh, Michigan and a Master of Fine Arts from this workshop. Professor Hines is the author of five works of fiction, Next, which received the 2011 Believer Book Award from the Believer magazine, Kings of Infinite Space, a Washington Post best book for 2004, The Lecturer's Tale, and Publish and Perish, which were both New York Times notable books of the year, and The Wild Colonial Boy, which received the Adult Literature Award from the Friends of American Writers, and was a New York Times notable book for 1990. The reason why I'm really interested to interview Professor Hines now is he's uh, a lecturer on a great course, which you can download from the Great Courses series. And the, the title of the series is Writing Great Fiction, Storytelling Tips and Techniques. And in particular, as a psychiatrist, I was particularly interested in his very last lecture, where he discusses some very interesting theories about why writers write. I think, of course, he's referring to fiction writers uh, more specifically. So first of all, um, Professor Hines, why did you want to talk about this question of why writers write? Well, it comes at the end of uh, 24 lectures that are basically a craft course about the writing of creative uh, writing of fiction. And so I just thought it was a nice way to round off the end of the course by talking uh, a little bit. I mean, the lectures comes in two halves. The first half is about the business of writing. And I talk a little bit about that because usually people who are interested in, in becoming writers uh, are very interested in the business of writing. But I also wanted to talk a little about why it is we do it because it's not an easy thing to do. Um, it isn't necessarily a very profitable remunerative thing to do. Um, and I just, I don't know, it was just something that interested me and I thought it would be sort of the perfect way to round off the, the course. Now, you mentioned George Orwell writing a famous essay as to why he writes or why people write. Can you tell us a bit about the way he was thinking about, about writing? And, and he, he classified the reasons for writing into several basic categories. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's after maybe shooting an elephant in 1984, it's probably his most famous essay. It's called Why I Write. I think he wrote it in the late 40s, after he wrote Animal Farm and before he wrote 1984. Um, and it's basically him sort of talking very personally about, about the reasons why he writes, you know, what drives, drives him, to, drove him to write. And he divided it into, into four bullet points, basically. Uh, one, I think, was egoism, just, you know, wanting to, you know, liking the applause, liking the attention. Uh, another he called aesthetic impulse, which was taking pleasure in, in putting words together and in the careful crafting of words. Uh, one, I think he was, I think the third one was historical impulse, the desire to explain things as they are. And then the fourth one for him, which was the, probably the most important one and the one he devotes the most time to in his essay, is the political impulse. Because, of course, Orwell is probably, even now, probably still the most famous uh, political essayist. Um, and so those were the four reasons that he used. And I sort of took off from them because I was, I loved Orwell when I was, a, I still love Orwell, but when I was a younger writer, when I was in my early twenties, he was very influential to me. Uh, and I sort of adopted those four reasons as my four reasons. And as I've gotten older, um, 
I've sort of adapted his four reasons into a slightly different version of, you know, that, that, that are the reasons that I continue to write or the reasons I tell myself I write. I know I realize I'm talking to a psychiatrist here. So the real reasons I write may be unknown to me. So. Now you mentioned that he was very influential. Could you tell us why he was influential and in what way he was influential? Well, just because I think, uh, Orwell was one of the few people to, to write about that to begin with. I mean, these days, you know, you throw a stick in a bookshop and you'll hit, hit 40 different books by famous writers about why they write. But back then, I think he was one of the first to talk about it and to talk about it so personally, as a matter of fact. Um, it, it was, uh, I don't know, it's just, it's, just a, it's an essay that I know that gets anthologized a lot. I know that in the collected edition of his works, which... Uh, is arranged chronologically that I have. Um, it appears as the very first essay in the book, even though it's one of the last ones he ever wrote because it's considered to be so important by the people who put the anthology together. So, I, and I know a lot of, virtually every writer I know um, has read it and, and thought about it. So it just, it's just something that's sort of rung down the decades. Now, one of the comments you make in your very interesting lecture is I think you quote another writer as saying you should write as if your parents are dead. Yeah, that's uh, Anne Lamott, yeah. Yeah, what, what, what does that mean? Um, I think, I mean, I don't want to speak for Anne Lamott. It's from a wonderful book, one of the, another very influential book that I think came out about 10, 15 years ago. It's by a, an American writer named Anne Lamott. And she wrote a terrific book called Bird by Bird. And some of it is just craft. I mean, most of the book is about craft. It's, it's about, you know, how to, how to put a narrative together, how to structure your life as a writer. But she also at the end of her book, in the same way that I do at the end of my lecture, she talks a bit about what it means to be a writer. And she talks, you know, very honestly about it. Um, and one of her great lines is, write as if your parents are dead, which is her way of saying, write as if, Write fearlessly, write boldly, write with the understanding that you may offend people, that you may, you may give away somebody's secrets, you may reveal things people don't want revealed, uh, but you do it anyway because the whole, the whole point is, if, unless you're writing truthfully, there's really no point in, in writing at all. Um, so I think it was sort of her comic way of saying, you know, just, just don't be afraid. But you also mentioned some other writers. I think you mentioned Graham Greene. Yeah, Graham, of... Greene's, Graham Greene very famously said, all, all novelists or all writers have a sliver of ice in their heart. And then Joan, Joan Didion, the uh, famous American uh, novelist and essayist, has a very famous quote. I think it's from the beginning of her uh, book of essays, Slouching Towards Bethlehem. Um, she says, all writers are always selling somebody out, which is another way of saying, you know, write as if your parents are dead or all writers have a sliver of ice in their hearts. But I feel what you're, you're getting at there is at some level, and I'm paraphrasing, writers basically take someone they know and they put, it, put them in their books. Um, and, no, it's, and, not, it's, not, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, I don't think, okay. I mean, some people do. Obviously, some people do. Right. Um, um, I, I can't remember if I mentioned it in the lectures or not, but uh, at one point, I think I did talk about the writer Anne Beattie, an American short story writer and novelist, who uh, once gave an interview in the New York Times where she talked about how she'd gotten quite good at giving dinner parties for her friends because she often put her friends or characters thinly, thinly, you know, thinly disguised versions of her friends uh, in her stories. And so she got to be really good at giving dinner parties to smooth over any ruffled feathers. Um, 
not everybody does that. I mean, I don't do that. I put, I guess, let me put it this way. Um, you can't write about characters, which is what writing fiction is, unless you're writing about, unless you have some understanding of how people really are. And all your entire understanding of how people really are obviously comes from your experience with other people and your experience of yourself. So unless you're only going to write about yourself and you're, you know, you're going to have to base characters, not necessarily on entire real people, you know, you're not take, you don't take somebody whole necessarily and put them in a book, but you're going to base them on, on behaviors and, and attitudes and mannerisms that you have witnessed in other people over the course of your life. And in many cases, and in most cases, I think what you do is you kind of mix and match things. You don't necessarily take one person and reproduce them entirely in the course of writing fiction. Instead, you take you know, little bits and pieces from lots of different people and put them all together, which doesn't mean, of course, that those bits and pieces aren't still recognizable to the people involved, but you know, then that gets back to the right as if your parents are dead thing. Um, you know, you, you, unless you're going to write about inanimate objects, which would make some, for some pretty boring fiction, um, you're sort of, you have to write about what you know about people. And that means you have to write about people you know, at least indirectly. And towards the end of your very interesting lecture, you come up with some of your own theories about why people write. And you, you give this um, amazingly evocative phrase. You say, one of the reasons for writing is to erase yourself. Could you say something a bit about that? Sure, yeah. One of the things I've noticed over the years as a writer um, is that sort of the greatest satisfaction I get from writing. I mean, I love being published and I love giving, being reviewed and I love having people say they like my books. And that, that gets back to the reason number one that's you know, from Orwell, the egoism and the narcissism. But the most satisfying pleasure I've gotten from writing is, is those moments which don't happen every day and they don't even happen all that often necessarily. Sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm very self-conscious all the way through a writing session. But every once in a while, there's a time where I'm writing along and I'm creating something and I look up and two hours or three hours have passed and I wasn't even aware of the time. Uh, and I wasn't aware of myself. I wasn't aware of my surroundings. I completely inhabited the world I was creating. Um, and I've always, I've always found that this, I'm not a spiritual person. I'm not even, I'm, I'm an atheist. I'm not religious at all, but it's sort of the closest I think I've ever come to a sort of spiritual experience. And it's, and writing has become for me is the older I get is the closest thing I've got to a sort of spiritual practice. Um, Part of it is, I talk about this in the lecture, is that there's an interesting dichotomy, especially in writers, and maybe this is true of everybody, but I think it's especially true of writers, which is that writers are, are even more self-conscious, I think, than the, the ordinary person is. We're very, very, very self-conscious, very self-aware people, and very, you know, some of that is kind of annoying because we can be hypersensitive about things, but... I think part of the reason we write and, and this self-consciousness that kind of drives us to write. And the weird thing, the, the, the contradictory, the dichotomous thing is that we write in order to erase that self-consciousness. We write, we are self-conscious people who are driven to write by our self-consciousness who write in order not to be self-conscious. It's a very bizarre thing. And every once in a while, like I say, it works. 
and we find ourselves completely inhabiting the world of the story or the mind of a character who's nothing like us or a situation we've never been in and never will be in, and we're completely transported by it. And part of that, part of that is, I think, an attempt to also reproduce the feeling that reading has given us. I think a lot of people become writers because we love reading. We love being transported to another world by another writer. And sometimes we want to try and see if we can do it ourselves. And so I think there's kind of two elements to it. There's this tension between, you know, self-consciousness and self-effacement, but there's also this tension between really enjoying what somebody else has created and are wanting to see if we can do the same thing ourselves. So at the risk of oversimplifying, I think, what you're saying, one other way of putting it maybe is that writers have something about themselves, that self-consciousness, where at some level they want to escape from themselves. Exactly. Maybe all fiction or inhabiting imaginary worlds that we as readers consume fiction, it's also an attempt to escape uh, as well. Um, and so both, both parties are escaping at some level. Yeah, some um, though I want, I'm, I want to be careful about that word escape because escape, you know, people who dismiss fiction or dismiss certain types of fiction say, well, it's just escapist fiction, meaning it's just a way to turn your brain off for a while. And I think there's something with really good books, there's something much more profound than just escape. You're actually inhabiting another world. It's, you know, you're, I guess, technically you're escaping the world you actually live in, whether you're sitting in bed just before you go to sleep, or just sitting on, a, on an easy chair, reading a book or whatever, sitting, you know, on the subway, reading a book. It's more than just escape. It's, it's, it's a kind of, I don't want to say transcendence because that's, I don't know, that's that'd be way overstating it, but you are put into the mind of someone else or put into a situation you never would have been put in otherwise. Um, and I think it can be a really enriching and profound experience. It's not just, you know, switching on the television and, and, and forgetting your troubles for a couple hours watching a movie or something. It's a little more profound than just escape. Well, there's a very interesting evolutionary psychology theory. Evolutionary psychology is about the idea that everything that we do has some kind of evolutionary purpose. It has some, yeah. it, it, it had some kind of survival value in our ancestral environments, and that's why we have these modules in our brain that we have. And they have a theory as to why we dream. And the idea is that in a dream, you rehearse experiences or events that you might encounter in real life. And it's kind of, you're kind of getting a chance to rehearse how to behave uh, and that which might make you perform better in a real life situation, like you might dream about being chased by a predator, and somehow that seems to assist you maybe in real life should you be chased by a predator now i I feel that um, a great book should help you escape, but then it should deliver you back into the world so that you experience the world or act in the world in a better way. Um, than before you read the book. So although it takes you out of yourself or out of the world, it should deliver you back into it at the end. And I don't oh, know whether that's a very clumsy statement. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I absolutely agree. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. This is actually something I talked about in several lectures in the course. One of my favorite short stories is a short story by Anton Chekhov called The Kiss. And what's interesting about the story is that in terms of traditional story plotting, nothing happens in it. It's basically a story about a gray little man who's offered a chance for passion, doesn't take it, 
And that's pretty much all there is to the story. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. I and mean, I don't hope that doesn't make it sound too dreary. It's a wonderful story. It's, it's a beautiful experience to read. But I read that in a college class at the University of Michigan back in the 70s. And I was probably 19, 20 years old when I read this. And up to that point, I had read a fair amount of serious fiction. I started reading Conrad when I was already in high school. But I'd also read a lot of science fiction and, and genre stuff. But that was the first story I ever read that it just stopped me in my tracks because it didn't do what the stories I had read up to that point had done, which is sort of set up a situation, a conflict, and then resolved it and everybody kind of lived happily ever after. It was a story that showed me that sometimes nothing changes in a life and sometimes a man can live an utterly depressing, sad little life and not realize it and and never change. And and I had a really strong reaction to that story when I read it for the course, because I had two reactions. One was, it was so beautifully put together. And even at the young age of 19 and 20, when I'd barely begun to write myself, I could see that this story was just a masterpiece, that it, there was no, it was an almost perfect story. The other thing it did, though, is that it, it opened up a whole new way of looking at the world that never would have occurred to me. You know, I was young and I was still hopeful and I'm still hopeful now. I don't want to say I'm not entirely uh, despairing and bitter now that I'm getting old. But um, it was it was one of the first times I realized in my life that, you know, you can screw your life up and kind of not know you're doing it until years later. And that was a really profound uh, that was really something profound to read for a 19 year old. Um, and that story, like I say, and that story was a, was very much a watershed. I mean, that to use another literary term, uh, sort of literary slash spiritual term, that that story was reading that story for the very first time was an epiphany for me, because I realized a there's a different kind of storytelling that I didn't know anything about, and Chekhov showed it to me. The other thing that Chekhov showed me was that life was more mysterious and dangerous and possibly sad than I had any inkling of until I read it. So it was a really remarkable experience. And so that story did exactly what you were talking about. It took me out of my own world into the life of a Russian military officer in the late 19th century. And it also gave me a deeper, profounder, much more adult understanding of my own life and my own world. So I'm going to ask you a question that's very unfair and may lead you to run screaming from the room. But okay. when I uh, teach medical students, in, in the, when I used to teach medical students, one of the first things I would ask them in the very first tutorial on day one is, um, how, what is an education? What is an educated person? If you're sitting next to an educated person at a dinner party, what is it about them that indicates they're educated? And um, when I pose these questions to them, there'd be a long, long silence. And then one of the braver medical students would would, would perk up and say, excuse me, Dr. Pasord, is this going to come up in the exam? Because if it isn't, <laughs> why are we discussing it? Yeah. Which kind of like made my point for me. So I'm going to yeah. modify that question and say, if you're sitting next to a well-read person, uh, when I say well-read, I mean well-read in terms of fiction, um, can you tell that, do you think? I mean, is there something that you, you uh, being a well-read person gives you, do you think? Um, I mean, I know that's a very unfair question, but I wonder what your thoughts were. Yeah, I, th I think you can tell. I mean, obviously, you'd have to have a conversation with them, just sitting next to them without speaking to them. You'll never know. But right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you could. I think you could. I mean, I think they would have a slightly more sophisticated um, 
view of the world, I would hope. Um, a slightly more mature view of the world. Um, a slightly more melancholy view of the world, which is probably revealing more about myself than I want to. Um, yeah, I think I think you could. I think you could. I wish I could give you a better answer to that, but that's that's what I. That's got. okay. Now, yeah. I, um, the other reason why I think this question about why writers write is so interesting, particularly to psychiatrists and psychologists, is um, a lot of there's a lot of interest in that there may be a link between. Um, writing or being a writer or choosing to write and being, if I can use a colloquial term, a bit unhinged or yeah. having psychological problems or being a bit dysfunctional. And what's really interesting in particular about your course that you give on the Great Courses series is given that you taught and studied at the University of Iowa. The University of Iowa has one of the most famous writing programs um, in the U.S. for those outside of the U.S. who may not be aware of that. And several psychiatrists, including a very famous psychiatrist, Nancy Andreasen, have chosen the University of Iowa as a place to do research on this link between the possibility of serious mental illness and there being a link with, with uh, writers. And the research did seem to find there was a very strong link between mood disorders, being a bit bipolar or being prone to depression, and also things like alcoholism and being a writer. Um, so I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, whether it, it actually does help the creative pro pro process to be a bit unhinged, as opposed to the alternative theory, which is that the lifestyle of being a writer, that the toughness of it, the uncertainty and precariousness of it is what drives people into becoming a bit unhinged. Oh, I, I very much come down on the, on, the, on the first part of that. I don't think that I mean, being a writer can be difficult, and, and I, I'm sure that the life of the writer can, doesn't do you a whole lot of good psychologically. But I think writers are, as you put it, a little unhinged to begin with. Um, as you mentioned in your introduction, I was a student at Iowa in the late 80s, and I went back and I taught there back in like 2004, 2005, something like that. Um, and... Yeah, I, I mean, you, especially when you see a lot of writers together, a lot of young, ambitious writers together, it becomes this. I, I, you know, again, this isn't scientific. I haven't done a study, and this is purely anecdotal. But when you see that many young writers together, uh, it becomes pretty obvious they're not exactly like other people. Um, and it, it, I didn't know about the details of that particular study, but there was a rumor when I was a student at Iowa we used to talk about the fact somebody, somebody would say, you know, there was a study that said we're crazier than everybody else and that we're more prone to suicide and depression and alcoholism and so on. And, you know, being young sort of writers who wanted to make a mark in the world, we kind of took that as a badge of honor actually, which is kind of a crazy thing to do, which just proves again that we were crazy to begin with. But yeah, I think, I think there's something a little bit off about creative people in general, which drives them to do it. And, I've never thought too deeply about it because it, it would mean, you know, thinking perhaps a little bit more about myself than I really want to. But it, it does seem to me that part of the reason people create things, whether it's as, as an artist or a musician or as a novelist, is that you're trying to take control of something that you can't control in real life. Um, I've written, for example, a couple of of two of my books are academic satires. And I think some people assume that because I've written a couple of successful academic satires that I really understand how 
academic departments work, that I would, that if I were ever to be in an academic department, which I've never really been in any permanent way, I've taught as an adjunct and then as a visiting lecture for a bunch of places. Um, but if I'd ever been in a department, that I would have been a kind of player because I would have known, you know, how to work the politics of it. But the thing is, in real life, I'm hopeless at that. I'm terrible at networking and I'm terrible at that sort of thing. But when I'm writing about it, and I can look down on it as a sort of little god, and I can move these characters around and make them do what I want to, I can control an academic department in a way, and I can understand, even more importantly, I can understand how an academic department works in my own fiction in a way that I could never conceivably do in real life. And, I, and I've often wondered if part of the reason I write is to be able to take control of things or to explain things to myself that I can't quite work out in real life which makes it sound a little bit like therapy, I guess, but I've always been kind of skeptical of that too, because I know a lot of writers and I know a lot of writers who've written for a lot of years and we don't seem to be getting any better. So I don't think that writing fiction necessarily helps us any. Well, well it's been wonderful talking to you and running out of time a little bit. I want to ask you one last question, again, maybe sure. an unfair question, but um, I think that a lot of young people at school were encouraged to read and our parents tell us that reading books is a great idea. And often we can get lost in a particular author, particularly if an author has produced lots of sequels, like Agatha Christie, let's say, which didn't do sequels, but, but has a yeah. voluminous output. We can get quite addicted to a particular author. We consume these books voraciously. But then for a lot of people, not everyone, something seems to happen when you leave university and you get on with the, the serious business of, of making money and having a family and so on, where fiction seems to lose its appeal to a lot of people. And they never really read in quite the same way as they did when they were teenagers and get lost and I don't know whether it's because as an adult you're slightly more critical or you find it more difficult to suspend disbelief and so on. But um, as a writer, I, I wondered if you had any tips as to how people get back into reading and uh, reading fiction um, if, if they've lost um, that taste for it. Um, for those who already are really into reading fiction, this doesn't really apply. But um, uh, given that they, one of the points you make in your, your last lecture about the difficulty of being a writer and how few writers really make it, it seems to me that one of the solutions is, is to get more people to read fiction. In other words, to enlarge the market, which will give then writers a, a better chance, as it were. But I wondered what your thoughts were about that. Well, I, that's certainly been my experience. You know, I, know, I know a lot of, I have a lot of you know, friends who are my age or around my age who don't read as much as they used to. Um, I think the interesting thing, though, that may make it kind of an uphill slog for for uh, people like me who write prose fiction um, is that I don't think people lose that capacity for getting caught up in stories. Because one of the interesting things that's been going on for the last, say, 10 or 15 years is we've had this, what people are now calling like the second or third golden age of television. And I, th I think people now and I know a lot of people who are my age who used to read quite a bit will now spend an entire weekend or a week binge watching uh, a television series like Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad or something like that. And they're getting caught up in it in the same way that they would have gotten caught up, say, in Tolkien or C.S. Lewis back when they were you know, 15 or 16 years old. Um, so as to how to get people to engage more with actual prose fiction when they've got, you know, this infinite cornucopia online, you know, via Netflix or, or iTunes or the BBC or whatever. Um, 
that's kind of an uphill slog, and I wish I had a better answer for it. Um, the sin of coach people. Yeah, we need to encourage people to be, to be more persistent. I mean, one of the things about a book is it requires persistence in a way that watching a TV series doesn't. Is there something around that that, that would be helpful? Yeah, and the thing is, too, it's, it's, it's hard to, to make this argument without it sounding like eat your vegetables. But the thing is, reading a really profound literary novel like, say, Mrs. Dalloway, uh, Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, which... I, it took me a long time to appreciate how good that book was. I tried to read it in my 20s, and it wasn't until I was in my 40s that I finally read it all the way through. And since then, I've read it a couple times, and I just love it. Um, and it, it's an uphill climb trying to sell people on that book because there's no story. The prose is of consciousness, and it shifts from character to character in several sequences in a way that's very disconcerting and hard to follow. It's not as easy as watching three episodes of Breaking Bad. It's, it's, it's hard work. Um, and so I don't know, I, I don't know if I've got an argument to make, to get people interested in that kind of thing, except that if they do it, if they put in the work, I think they'll find that it's a much more satisfying and enriching and profound experience and life-changing experience than just watching another episode of, of Game of Thrones, much as I love Game of Thrones and I'm as big an addict of that as anybody. But the thing is you can get something more out of a book because in order to really engage with the book, you have to work at it. And by working at it, you find yourself even more deeply in the world of the writer and in the head of the character. And it's just, it's just a much more profound experience. Um, but like I say, that's a hard sell. Well, Professor Hines, many thanks indeed for talking to us. Today. Well, thank you for the thank fact you for... that you're the, author, you're the author of five books, uh, works of fiction, including Next, uh, Kings of Infinite Space, uh, the Lecturer's Tale, Publish and Perish, and The Wild Colonial Boy. Professor Hines, thank you very much indeed. Thank you.